became grandmother. And I believe we have a picture. <laughs> it was a very special moment. I could hardly wait to hold my new baby granddaughter. So as soon as we could, we travelled from London down to Bristol to meet her. And this beautiful, perfect baby soon asserted herself. Her besotted and somewhat nervous parents were wrapped round her little finger from the very start. And our son-in-law's parents came as well. And, you know, I felt odd twinges of jealousy and rivalry. <laughs> Goodness me, my competitive spirit hadn't gone to sleep. Altogether, being a grandparent was quite emotional. And I really wanted to be the best gran ever. But I realised I knew nothing about it. Now we're looking today at one particular grandmother called Lois. We don't have a lot to go on because she just gets one mention in the whole Bible and we read it in our reading. But we can actually work out quite a lot about Lois from that one verse. Why do we hear of her? Well, only because of her more famous grandson whose name is Timothy. <coughs> Timothy was one of Paul's closest associates. And if we look up the many references to Timothy in the New Testament, we find that in five different places, he's referred to as Paul's son. Now we know it's not a physical, genetic relationship, but Timothy was the right sort of age to be Paul's son. They became very close, and perhaps he was the son that Paul would have liked. So he's often referred to as my true son in the faith. And as a grandmother, Lois had had significant input into Timothy's life. The first time we meet Timothy is in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. He's just a young man, and Paul was impressed by him, and he wants to take him travelling with his team. But we discover more about the family. We find that his mother, Eunice, was Jewish and his father was Greek. Now that must have been a heartache for Lois. We don't know anything about her own marriage, but her daughter, at least, married outside the Jewish faith and a Greek son-in-law is not on your Jewish mother's wish list. Two weeks ago, we looked at Sarah, Abraham's wife, and thought about the disappointments she faced when she didn't have children. I think Eunice also faced a big disappointment when her chick, perhaps her only chick, we're not sure, married an unbeliever. Timothy's father seems to have been absent. It's possible he died, perhaps he just found a Jewish bride too difficult to deal with. But whatever the circumstances, he doesn't seem to be there. The family bear Greek names. I said this morning that that must have come from the father, but not so because actually somebody pointed out to me that other people in New Testament who we know were Jewish did have Greek names, including Lois herself and Eunice, her daughter. So, but the name is a Greek name, Timothy. It means honour God or honoured by God, giving honour to God. Take it how you will, but honour and God are in there. Perhaps Lois and Eunice had some say in that choice. 
It's certainly a name we liked because we used it for our own firstborn. We also discovered that Lois and Eunice and Timothy lived in a town called Lystra, and it's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, put nice big red arrows so you can spot it, I hope. If you turn back to Acts chapter 14, then we read about Paul's first visit to this town some years before. Whenever Paul arrived in a new place to preach the gospel, he would start by visiting the synagogue. But in Lystra, the synagogue is never mentioned, so perhaps there wasn't one. Which would mean the family had no strong Jewish community to support them. There might have been no Sabbath school for the little boy to go to. In fact, the town was a place of idol worship. When Paul and Barnabas were first there, they healed a lame man in the name of Jesus. But the crowds went wild. They thought their ancient gods must have reappeared. Barnabas must be Zeus. And can we have the next picture, please, Ken? Barnabas must be Zeus, and Paul must be his messenger, Hermes. And they set about offering sacrifices to them. Lots of people have tried to paint the scene. I don't know if you can see what's going on. There's a bull, there's people who want to worship Paul and Barnabas, and there's Paul with his hand up saying, no, no, don't do that. Um, the crowd were confused and disappointed. They'd just been going to have a big party, and it was aborted. Weren't these men gods, after all? So the next thing that happens is some Jews came from the towns of Antioch and Iconium, where Paul had already been, and they came to Lystra and they won the people over, and they tried to stone Paul to death. They dragged him outside the city when they thought he was dead. My. But the disciples gathered round Paul, and he got up and went back into the city. Then they went on to the next town. But not long afterwards they went back to Lystra to see the believers, to encourage them, and to appoint elders in that new church. So it's not an ideal environment to be bringing up a little boy. It's a pagan town of idol worshippers that are easily provoked to violence and lacked even the influence of a synagogue. And yet Lois and Eunice brought Timothy up there. And in Act 16, we find Timothy already grown up, perhaps uh, a teenager, late teens. He's part of the new church that Paul had founded on his first visit. It seems that Granny Lois and Mother Eunice had become Christians and joined the church. I like to think that the church was a wonderful new experience for them all, a wider family of people who shared their faith. These two women seem to have done a good job together in bringing up Timothy. He was well thought of in the church. And Paul saw his potential and recruited him to join his team. So we can imagine Timothy all excited and eager to be off. But I think Lois and Eunice might have been a bit less keen. Maybe they would have missed their breadwinner. Certainly they would miss his presence and company. But we don't read anything about that. If we look back at 2 Timothy chapter 1, which we read earlier, we realise that Granny Lois and Mother Eunice had made quite an impression on Paul 
As Paul writes this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. See, Paul's recognising the importance of their input. Lois first, Eunice, Timothy. That early Jewish training which Timothy received from a godly granny and mother would have been expanded further when they joined the church, coming to know their Messiah from Paul's preaching. A couple of chapters further on in 2 Timothy, we read this. Paul writing to Timothy, of course. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, not only was Timothy taught the scriptures, but he knew those who taught him. Their example backed up what they said. Their lives told the same message. I get the feeling that Lois was probably the key player. And let's note in passing the emphasis that Paul placed on the Old Testament writings. There wasn't very much of the New Testament around at this point, but Paul says that the scriptures they already had were inspired, were God-breathed, and they were able to make a person wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament all points to what God was planning to accomplish through Christ. It's all useful, and it shapes us and trains us and equips us for every good work. And the main thing that this godly grandmother did for Timothy was teach him to love God from the Old Testament. When I became a grandmother, I belonged to a women's study group at my former church and it was mainly women who were quite a bit older than I was at the time. Um, the photograph is not that particular group but it gives you the idea. I was very impressed by their godly lives and their input into their grandchildren in particular. For some of them they've become Christians later in life and were married to unbelievers. Others had had good Christian marriages for some, quite a few of them, their children had not followed their faith. Oh, that's a big heartache, isn't it? But they didn't give up. They were still praying for their children, but also for their grandchildren. They prayed fervently for them. They did everything they could to pass on their faith. They taught their children the Bible stories. They taught them songs. They taught them to come to church whenever possible. And some of them had seen their grandchildren become believers and be baptised, even though the faith had skipped a generation. So all sorts of things are possible, aren't they? And some of you have similar stories to tell, and if you have, I'd love to hear those stories. 
Grandparents are very special in children's lives. Even if we don't get much time with our grandchildren, or even our great-grandchildren, we can still have an impact on them. We're charged with a responsibility to pass on what we know. And the Old Testament speaks about this. For example, in Deuteronomy 4, uh, Moses commanded, Be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you don't forget the things that you've seen with your own eyes. Don't let them fade from your memory as long as you live. Teach them to your children and grandchildren. And I'm sure he would have said great-grandchildren as well. I think these instructions apply to all of us, even if we never had children and grandchildren of our own. We all share responsibility to pass on what we know. So if you feel a bit left out of this grandparent fest, perhaps you can think about adopting a child. And I don't mean actually legally adopting, but a child who you see frequently or maybe not so frequently, perhaps one of those that comes to church, perhaps someone in your street or in your family, neighbouring children. There are so many children who have no one to pray for. Just think of that. I often, when I look at children, I think, I wonder if anyone prays for you. And then I think, I'm going to. And of course, I don't keep praying for every child I meet, but it is quite a thought, isn't it? That we can intercede for a child. So we can be as grandparents to some needy child. There are verses in the Psalms about the importance of just this thing. Psalm 78 says, I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We'll tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. You know, as I read this this morning in the first uh, service, the thought in the back of my mind was, you know, we haven't done a very good job at that. <coughs> Some of us probably have done an excellent job, but as a generation, we've not passed on our faith. And I think that's something we need to bring to God and ask for forgiveness and for his help. I don't believe it's too late. I think prayer can change things. One of my favourite verses is in Psalm 71, and I took it as my verse for old age when I hit 60. That's a little while ago now. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvellous deeds. Even when I'm old and grey, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. So what does a godly grandparent look like? Well, these things apply to all of us, whether we actually have grandchildren or not. 
of all, we need to love God passionately ourselves. We need to get rid of any hypocrisy or inconsistencies in our own lives. Live out what we believe. Youngsters soon spot where we don't. And that's one reason why they turn away. Secondly, let's show them how our faith works. It's not really lectures and classes that they need, but everyday teaching in practical things. Show them how your faith impacts on what you do, how you live your life, how you make decisions. And thirdly, tell your own story. Tell them how you've experienced God, how he stepped into your life. Be real about your struggles and show them how to repent and how to apologise. And the fourth thing is pray, pray, pray. I'm going to close with a prayer that I found. Uh, it comes from a book by a lady called Anita Cleverly. I haven't actually read it, but she wrote a book about being grandparents and it looked good. Um, but I found the prayer on the web and perhaps as I read this prayer, you can picture a particular youngster who you know in your mind. Okay, got that? And here's the prayer. Father, show them how wide and long and high and deep your love is. Show them that you care about them more than anyone else does much more than us, or even their parents. Show them that your love isn't restrictive and that you delight in the person you've made them. Show them the immeasurable dimensions of your love, Lord. You can do that. Amen.